Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, young deadbeats. I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. Haven't you heard the good news? The economy is doing great. Unemployment is at an almost 50-year low. Economists are calling it full employment. Economists, known for their way with words. So I guess all of my bitching and moaning about economic justice for the last three seasons was for nothing because it's all fixed. The end. Yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful? But you guys should know by now that it's not that easy. The good news about unemployment masks some deeper, festering issues of inequality. And young people entering the job market are trying to figure out how to make it work, even at a big disadvantage compared to previous generations. We talked last season about how most of the crap being spewed about millennials is nonsense. Millennials are not a monolith. Millennials are not only middle class to upper class. There are also low-income millennials, guys. We never talk about them. And on this show, we haven't even really gotten to Gen Z. Gen Z has just joined the workforce, and the workforce will never be the same. Mostly because Gen Z is rightfully traumatized. Their work is largely part-time. They have an impossible time finding well-paying entry-level jobs that don't require years and years of quote-unquote experience, and rising costs of, well, everything has made things like homeownership, kids, and even financial stability or mobility seem like a pipe dream. This week on the show, we talked to Joy Shan, an editor at the California Sunday Magazine. She decided to dig into what the world of work looks like for Gen Z. She interviewed all kinds of people in their teens and early 20s, some of their parents, professors, generational consultants, which is a thing we will get into what that is soon, and economic experts about what it looks like for Gen Z to go to work. She found plenty of depressing realities, that higher and higher degrees are needed for jobs, that wages are too low for Gen Z to realistically live on, and that the rise of permalancers and part-time gigs is unethical as fuck. They're being told they're too educated for retail or service industry jobs, but not educated enough for the jobs their parents or grandparents could have easily nabbed at their age. Increasingly, people of Gen Z are taking internships and fellowships as starter gigs, where pay and health insurance are questionable. The internet and the ubiquitous nature of applying for jobs online has also caused a flood of more applicants than employers know what to do with. Competition has become incredibly fierce for even the jobs that don't require a lot of experience or education. And because Gen Z is graduating both high school and college with low expectations and immense desperation, they often don't know what to ask for or what conditions and treatment is appropriate. Companies are therefore able to really take advantage of their young workforce. And believe me, they do. I've talked before on this show about the danger of companies saying, we're a family, we all work here because we love the company and we love each other and we're just so passionate. In her article called For Hire, 
Joy covers the cult of the 24-7 workday and the toil glamour surrounding the hashtag grind. Toil glamour, by the way, is the name of my new band. So who is Gen Z and what are they doing at work? The oldest Gen Z people, according to like the sort of official cutoff date, and we can talk about where this term comes from later and like the arbitrariness of it. Um, but the official cutoff date for the oldest ones is those born in 1996. So the oldest Gen Z people graduated from college if they went to college in 2018. And the youngest ones are like in their preteen age right now. And so what? How, where did Gen Z come from? Like, why is this the, the name of the generation? And like, you know, I, I always fight back against sort of talking about generations as a monolith. So where did where did Gen Z come from? Um, I'm so glad you said that about the monolith, too. So the name comes from I'm actually not sure. I'm guessing it just has to do with like there's Gen X and then there's mm-hmm. Gen Y and then now it's Gen Z. But, you know, these sort of like generational names, I think a lot of them are just sort of like marketing terms. One thing that I sort of happened upon while doing research for this story was that there's this like cottage industry now of like multi-generational workplace consultants and their whole job is just like consult for companies on like how to cater to the younger generation because, you know, they're so different and like people don't understand them and things like that. So I sort of entered it with a bit of skepticism. I was like, how different could Gen Z be from millennials, which is what I am? But um, what I found was that there are some there are some pretty big intrinsic and behavioral differences. What are generational consultants? <laughs> I'm so <laughs> um, they're people who sort of they specialize in helping like a company of uh, say mostly like people in their 40s or 30 30s or 40s they specialize in helping employers basically like figure out what is going on in the young people's minds and like how do you attract them to this company and how do you retain them because people are definitely like moving from job to job with more rapidity than they were before so one woman i spoke to she runs this consultancy called XYZ University. And what they do is they do um, a ton of focus groups with adolescents, uh, so Gen Z people and also millennials. And they also do surveys about what they want from the workplace. And then they bring suggestions to different companies about like how they might change things about company hierarchy or hiring structure or like branding and website to better attract themselves for like the newer people who are coming into the workforce. Wow. So there's there's that much of a disconnect between the people hiring and the people looking for jobs. <laughs> yes, completely. I mean, don't we see it in some of these like LinkedIn articles that go viral, like <laughs> like the HR consultant who's like, oh, my God, all these candidates are ghosting me and I don't know what to do. So, yeah, I think that there are people who are sort of experiencing that cultural difference and are just like trying to figure out how to adapt to it. I mean, a lot of that, and I'm maybe projecting, but a lot of that to me is like, it seems like the companies are like, well, we used to be able to treat people like shit. And now these young people come in and they don't want to be treated like shit. I'm confused. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right. And what I noticed from my friends, so like younger millennials and also the people I spoke to is like, there's this idea that you are the only person looking out for you right now. You know, previously, you know, we have this idea that we always refer back to, which is like, previously you would work for a company, you would start in the mailroom or whatever, um, stay there for like 20, 30 years, get a really good salary, get all these benefits, 
get a pension, retire, live your like best life. Um, and I think like starting in 2008, um, and maybe even before, but especially in 2008, in the midst of all these layoffs, there was this sort of like broader recognition that, you know, oh my God, like your company really isn't looking out for you the way you thought you were. And I think all these changes that we've seen in corporate restructuring has affirmed that. So like now I think you can go up to any young person and be like, you know, is your employer looking out for you? And most people will say, well, you know, even if you have a good relationship with your boss, maybe you really do have to look out for yourself. And so I think that's why that's why people are also changing jobs more because like that's a way to sort of like accrue more opportunity. You know, you can like earn more by doing that. And mm-hmm. also if something doesn't suit you, you can probably leave. Yeah. I mean, my very first job, I I was working in a newsroom and within like six months, there was something that happened where they didn't have enough money and I watched everyone around me get fired. So Mm -hmm. at at that point, Mm -hmm. you start panicking and looking for other – like there's no loyalty to the job because the job, I think – what I really resonated with in the article is the job demands so much of you but then gives you basically nothing back. Yes. And so you say that there's like different attitudes from Gen Z. Is it that they they are just recognizing that and voicing it and saying it rather than sort of like my parents' age who would be like – no, you just get treated like shit by a boss and then you go to work and you do it and that's what you do. And I think like, is it is it that they, I mean, it, it also, it seems like a mix of optimism in that mm-hmm. I can get a better job, I want more for myself, people should be treated better and defeatism of like, well, the future sucks so I'm just gonna like do what I want. That's a really good question, Gabby. I was actually sort of trying to wrap my head around this as well, because on the one hand, you know, we have this latter thing that you were pointing out, which is almost this like, well, like things are looking kind of bleak and all I have is me. So mm-hmm. that's definitely out there. And, you know, one of the the last pieces that was part of this story was about how younger people are sort of recognizing this hustle culture that's everywhere, this drive to work 24-7. yes. And the three people we spoke to are finding ways to get out of that, to escape temporarily. And so, you know, one of the women who I really adored speaking to, she just graduated, um, but she was saying like, you know, I actually believe that you should try to steal as much time and money from your employer as you can. Not money. Yes. (laughs) Yes. No, 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 no. (laughs) I, okay. I, you should, yes, I believe, I agree with this woman. Can you explain what she said? I fully am on board with this. And I, this is maybe, this will be what exposes and cancels me. Take toilet paper from (laughs) your company bathroom. Take toilet paper home with you. I don't care. If you work for a big, not a mom and pop, but if you work for like a corporation, <laughs> t- put to- fill your backpack with toilet paper, take that shit home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you see that uh, New York Times piece about, um, oh my God, I was obsessed with this story, but it was in, this, in the style section. And it was about how employees at companies that offer snack bowls are basically like making lunchable meals out of those snack bowls. So Absolutely. You don't, I I love that piece. And there was an amazing, there were several amazing quotes in the story that was like, well, like, dude, I'm living in New York. It's so expensive. My salary gets me there kind of. 100%. If I can just like make this pizza out of this uh, 
like this cracker cheese situation, then like I can save, you know, $40 a week. Um, but yeah. Oh, so- open your backpack, <laughs> put all the granola bars in there, close your backpack, go home. <laughs> I have no, I don't feel bad about that at all. <laughs> So this woman we spoke to, um, so she just graduated pretty recently. And I think what was really interesting about her was that she recognized upon basically like the first step in her job process when she was like looking at all these job openings, she was saying, I noticed that there was this language around work that made it seem as though I would have to give up all of my time. And it's really, really common in the Bay Area, and I bet in New York as well, where there's just like an intense work culture where it's like, we're all passionate people and we all have this like drive and this devotion to succeed. And we're a community of like passionate, like-minded individuals, stuff like that. And I, I actually ran a search on Indeed, the job board website and searched for the word passionate and found that there were like 250,000 entry-level openings that came up that had the word passionate in it. And they weren't all jobs like I think in tech, we sort of expect this sort of language now maybe, but they weren't all jobs like that, right? They were like legal jobs. They were like warehouse associate jobs. There were retail jobs. They were like, you know, it sort of ran the the salary spectrum. Um, but she was saying, you know, she noticed that and she said, you know, I don't want that. So she found a job that didn't expect that of her. And then even she said that even when she was there, you know, she noticed that a lot of her colleagues don't want to take lunch. Like they don't, they want to eat lunch at their desk or are afraid of being gone for too long. But she makes it a point to, you know, she can find a way to read books at her desk. Um, Mm -hmm. If she can escape for an afternoon coffee and also read more, she'll do that. Which I found really surprising because I think that for, for me at least, I think for a lot of the people who are my age or older, we are so steeped in this culture of having to work 24-7 that when someone named it and like called it out, it was like a revelation. I was like, oh my God, yes, that is what we're doing, but we don't have a we don't have distance from it. And I think that what's so interesting about talking to people who are coming into the workforce right now is that they can see all these dynamics that are playing out in front of them and in people older than them. And they can interpret it and analyze it and then find their own response to it in a way that maybe like I I wasn't able to. Yeah, the word passionate I feel is is a a way to say we're not going to pay you that much or treat you that well, but <laughs> but uh you're going to love it. Like I think it's a it's a misdirection. <laughs> it's a word, it's like a euphemism for I mean, I I loved when you were talking about I had never heard it phrased this way, the toil glamour Like Mm -hmm. the idea of like, I'm working so hard, I'm hustling so hard, it's glamorous. So do you see that Gen Z isn't isn't falling for that as much? Because I know me personally, like I've been this way for so long and my job has been this way for so long that I'm 30 and I'm just now figuring out how to do things that don't have an end game. Like I literally Mm -hmm. have picked up guitar. Because I'm like, because I'm like, I, this is the first time in my entire life, starting at age 14 when I had a job to now. So 16 years where I'm like, you know, that you can do things and have skills that don't have to do with like making money and work. But I, it took me 16 years to figure that out. So like, do you see a difference where Gen Z is sort of like already on that tip? That's a really good question. I was curious about that as well. So 
I could see the answer going both ways. And I think that right now, because we only have one year of them being in the workplace, that we don't quite have enough anecdotal evidence to go off of yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I could see it going two ways. So one of them is that they're going to like be hustling as much or even more than all of us. I spoke to this one guy who was, uh, he was about to graduate from a really competitive engineering school with an engineering degree. And what he was saying was that he hasn't graduated yet. He's already working three jobs just yes. to keep up with how expensive tuition is. And he said all his friends were doing that too. And so because of how they have this expectation that it's going to be, they're going to have to work harder for maybe less, we could see a world in which they're just going to keep working really, really hard. And I think also, especially everyone I spoke to is so driven to like make, to set themselves up as well as they can, given how competitive everything is. Like we could see them working even harder. But there's this one, again, going back to this sort of workplace consultant, um, there was one person I spoke to who said that she was beginning to see the hint of maybe returning to this idea of work-life balance in young people but she wasn't sure where that was going. If that were to happen, if the pendulum were to swing in the opposite direction of optimization, I think that would be super fascinating. But yeah. one thing that we're forgetting about too is that like the toil glamour has so much to do with social media and just being online and presenting yourself online. Oh and yeah. It becomes more apparent who is like, living their best work life and who isn't. And one person I spoke to specifically talked about like the cool workplace trend, you know, like going on Instagram and seeing all these people who are in their like cool open plan offices with like LaCroix and ping pong and like, like life-changing company mottos and all this stuff and just uh -huh. feeling kind of bad and feeling like they were being left out of something. Yeah, well, it's hard to put your good health insurance plan on Instagram, but you sure as hell can post about <laughs> M&Ms and bowls. Um, <laughs> so there was a thing that really stuck out to me about young job seekers coming up against even like entry level jobs requiring three years of experience. This thing where it was like, if you are a person who wants to even do like service or retail, you kind of need to like, that's going to someone with a bachelor's degree versus like it used to go to someone who maybe uh, didn't have a degree versus like now the the entry-level job that would have gone to the person with the bachelor's degree is now going to, like, someone with four years' experience and a master's. Like, can you explain, like, what these Gen Zers are finding when they search? Yeah, totally. Um, this is one of the more interesting things that I came across, too. I think that sort of an anecdote people were telling us over and over is, uh, here's a job, and if I look at just the description of the job and what I have to do, I think I could do that. But it wants two or three years of experience. And I think that we're sort of used to hearing this story, right? And just sort of accepting that. But when I spoke to some economists, we heard this narrative that I thought was really interesting, which is that, you know, prior to 2008, companies were already beginning to outsource or automate routine work. So data entry, clerical stuff, things like that. But in 2000, when 2008 happened, a lot of companies were like, oh, sh you know, we have to we have to downsize, like we have to start saving money. So it really mm -hmm. catalyzed companies to start looking for ways to cut costs. So one of them was to sort of automate out more routine work. And then also what happened in 2008 was that there were suddenly a bunch of 
really qualified, college-educated, skilled people who didn't have jobs. And so if you were an employer, like suddenly you just, you could choose from almost anybody. And that meant that like a job that went to say somebody who just graduated from college, you could suddenly have someone with five years of experience do that. Uh There's a sort of specific economic term for this called um, credential inflation or up-credentialing. And what a number of people told me was that, you know, even though we're in a very different job market now, the effects of this are still present. So we spoke to a number of recent hires who found ways around this. And all of them had really interesting strategies, actually. Um, But what one young woman said was that she was tempted to separate volunteer and unpaid work and to sort of make the volunteer work sound more like a hobby almost. And then she was like, hold on, like, I can't do this. Like I, she had a job at a bookstore. What I put into this like unpaid work at a bookstore is like really, it's quite valuable. So Uh she was, she basically found a way to like rephrase it such that everything sounded as value, all of her experiences sounded as valuable as they actually were, which I think is, she made the point too. It's like, as a woman, you know, like I'm going to come and go into every interview and be like, oh shoot, like I'm not qualified. And it's the the opposite is true for men. So she's like, I'm counterbalancing it. It was such a compelling argument. And what was really interesting too, is that like a lot of these economists who study underemployment, they found that women are so much more likely to be underemployed. It's like another added twist to, you know, the pay gap conversation that's going on, Uh right? Which is like, because if you start out in your first job, in a job that doesn't match what you went to school for, doesn't match your level of degree, it sort of like impacts the rest of your Earning potential for the rest of your life impacts your career trajectory for the rest of your life. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about, which was like this idea of beefing up your resume by giving the work that you did the power that it deserves. Because I think people are looking at these job listings and saying, oh, it says three years experience. Like I worked at my school newspaper. It says three years experience at a newspaper. And I go, oh, well, I only worked at my school newspaper. But I just said like, wrote news articles like you don't have to mention if you got paid or not mm-hmm. they just so like wrote news articles for three years like that's that's true so that i found that really interesting and in that the gen z people you had talked to had sort of figured that out yeah absolutely and as this young woman said better than i ever could she was like we're counterbalancing pre-existing power structures um by doing mm-hmm. this so yeah it's not lying Exactly. You're saying, look, I'm sorry that this is the sitch for you, but like that doesn't allow any of us to find jobs. So here we are. <laughs> so one thing that stuck out in terms of of not understanding the job market is, and this rang very true to me, is people who, who want more money, but they don't necessarily know what to ask for. They don't know what to charge. Or they also are like setting unrealistic deadlines in the sense that like the employer will be like, well, how long will it take you to do this? And then they want to say a short amount of time. So they're like, uh, two weeks, but like really it's a month, but they just feel like weird. They don't know like what the realistic timeline is or what the realistic salary is. Like, is there that sort of anxiety going on for younger people too, where they, they're not sure what the etiquette is? Where that came up specifically was in this discussion of like self-employment and gig Mm -hmm. work. Because one of the things that we talked about in the piece was sort of this very growing, very nascent move on behalf of colleges, community colleges, and then also four-year colleges to sort of teach students how to 
be their own boss in a way because of how where the economy is going and like how so much work now is independent and freelance and contract. Where we focused that piece of the story was on this really interesting pilot project that happened at 23 community colleges in California, where it was called the Gig Economy Pilot Project. And like these business professors were teaching students like, okay, let's say you want to find a gig work and be your own boss and like do independent contracting. How do you actually turn that into like a feasible career and not just a side hustle? And how do you not get screwed? Because it's so easy to get screwed. Oh, Um, yeah. And so part of that conversation was also about like, here's how much to charge. Here's how much you should feasibly earn per Mm -hmm. hour in order to make this actually work. Because what we've learned, especially in the last few years, is that it's just as easy to not make enough money doing that kind of work as it is to, you know, actually succeed. Oh, I think people are scared. I mean, I the question I get most is like from high schoolers who say, I am an artist or I do these things that are independent contractor things and I don't know what to ask for. I'm scared that they'll take the money away. Should, like, am I undervaluing myself? Am I overvaluing myself? Like, they're they're incredibly nervous, um, I think, because they they just don't know what they're worth or they, they don't know that the company isn't their friend and that the client isn't, like, their buddy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but isn't it so interesting that they have to think about that? I mean, high schoolers, that's so young. Like, it's... It, oh, yeah. Uh, it's so interesting that they even have to think about that from such an early age because I imagine for our parents, you don't – when you just assume you're going to have a salaried job with benefits, yes. you don't have to really be like, how much should I charge per hour? You know, it's kind of just there. You're set. But yeah, this is definitely like a new question that's like become very relevant now. It's like how do you value your time because your time can go in so many different directions. What about entering the workforce for – people who are Gen Z who don't have a degree or who mm. uh, are coming into it straight out of high school. I feel like a lot of times there's focus on what's going on with the college graduates, mm-hmm. but that's like a certain su- subset of person. And we've talked about this with millennials where we're not talking about the people that are of this generation that are lower income. Yeah, that, I'm really glad you brought that up. When we were sort of conceiving this story, there was a lot of conversation about, you know, how much do we want to focus this on college grads? And we did, for the most part, focus it on people who went to college because the value of that is sort of in flux right now. And I think that... The value of college. Right. The value of college is sort of in flux. And there's this idea that, you know, in the past, if you go to college, it'll guarantee a good life, you know, quote unquote, good life, a good Mm -hmm. job, stable income. Maybe you can buy a house all that, you know, nice stuff. And that's not a guarantee anymore. And I think that what we're seeing is um, it feels like the start of a cultural shift, but like the very start of it. But I think there's this broader awareness that maybe college is not is not the best option for everybody. So I think there's a broader awareness that, oh my gosh, maybe we should do like cost benefit analysis. Maybe for me, the returns aren't as high as they could be. Um, and what are some like lower cost alternatives to that? Yeah, because it is it is at odds with the idea of credential inflation, though, right? Yeah, a little bit. I'm glad you brought that up. But I think that credential inflation also has to do with experience. And like, mm-hmm. can you make up for not having, say, a bachelor's degree with like a ton of work experience? And I think 
there are a number of programs around the country that are experimenting with like the apprenticeship model. So can you find someone who's like 15 years old who sort of already has a sense of what they want to do and just start giving them job experience then and setting mm-hmm. them up? That's for, what like, I did. Oh, did you? What did you do? I, w- I worked at a, all of most. I mean, I was also a cater waiter and I was bad at it, but I mostly uh, in high school worked as a reporter for a newspaper until I went to school for journalism. Well, do you think that when you started applying for jobs, having that experience the when, from when you were in high school, like, do you think it like it counted for something? I think it was helpful. Yeah, because now I'm 30 and I and I have. 15 years of professional journalism experience versus like, you know, versus like someone who got out of school with me and would have like eight years. Right, right. Yeah. And the apprenticeship model is saying like, okay, so let's take like someone who's 15, start training them for a middle skilled job. So a job that could sort of guarantee, not guarantee, there are no guarantees anymore, but that could set them up for like actually having like a really good salary down the line. Um, Mm -hmm. And then maybe they don't have to go to college or maybe they can get an associate's degree while working and then not take out, you know, $200,000 in loans. And could that actually be better for both them and for their employers? Because then they can just start working right away. So that's sort of like a thing that's starting. It's also wild to be like, how can we best prepare children for capitalism? <laughs> it's like bonkers. <laughs> I think the, it's so hard to escape capitalism unless you're like really rich, right? Like, isn't that the only way to do it? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that the shit? Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly as you were saying about those high schoolers you were talking to. There have been surveys of young people like people who are still in high school that finds it. So many of them are already trying to like earn income on the side. That's like, absolutely. like, you know, they're hustling, they're selling clothes on Poshmark. They're asking you for advice about how to charge per hour. Um, Oh, I have one girl who I met in Chicago who is like a full, like she's a photographer. So she like has graduated from high school and was, or was a senior when I met her. And it was like, uh, post me on Instagram. So my Instagram gets likes. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I posted her and like, she's like, a fo- she's just trying to work as a photographer using um, Instagram as like a business card. Oh, and that yeah. was like a 17 year old. You're in it. We have to swim in it. Um, and I think that for these, for younger people now, especially people who sort of watch older people be affected by 2008, it's sort of like, oh my gosh, you know, there's this pressure to find a way to be as financially stable as possible. And the only way to do that is to just play the game and play it as best as you can. So let's talk about, okay, two things. One is the people that are choosing between dream jobs and higher paying jobs. Because millennials, and I'm, again, we're being very monolithic about it, but like millennials were sort of seen as being more, in the press, being more like, I want my dream job. Mm -hmm. Versus like, there was this idea that Gen X was very like, well, I need stability and I need a job that's going to make money because I want to own a home and have kids. So like, where's Gen Z at? Right. Yeah. Do they think they can own homes? Do they think they can have kids? (laughs) I think they think, I think they think that they're going to have to work really, really damn hard for that. Yeah. Um, So I'll maybe start with what a workplace consultant person told me first, which I thought was compelling. And then we can talk about like what exactly I heard from some people, but, um, One of them told me, you know, you are so much more influenced by the previous generation than you think. So she was saying that millennials were raised, a lot of them were raised by boomers who sort of grew up in this time where 
things were pretty good. There was a lot of social safety nets in place. And so the boomers taught their kids, you know what, like, you just pick what you like and you do that and things will work out. So sort of raising their kids with these rose-colored glasses on. And the same is not true for Gen Z, you know, like, when 2008 happened, those graduates who graduated in class of 2008, 2009, they were the most debt-ridden generation in history. And then the generation above them was second most debt-ridden. So what this consultant told me was that, like, for Gen Z, you know, they watched their parents deal with the aftermath of 2008. If it wasn't their parents, it was their older siblings. And then coupled with the financial crisis was also the student debt crisis and just how people are saddled with debt from college that they were promised that they would be able to pay them off with a good job. But that promise worked out for some people. It wasn't quite able to for some for a lot of others. Yeah, they're traumatized by what they saw. And they yeah. were kids. They were kids. And I think a sentence I heard over and over, which I found so fascinating, was that even if their families themselves were not like concretely affected, this anxiety is still there. And so what I heard over and over was like, I just don't want to have to worry. I don't want to have to yeah. worry that whether or not my job will be there. I don't have to worry about whether or not I can support my kids. I just want to be anxiety free. And so maybe having a dream job isn't as dreamy as it actually is if it's going to fill me with so much anxiety. You know, maybe I, I can do a more stable thing. There were two conversations, one that I had and one that my um, co-reporter Tom had that talked about like the sort of like interesting financial behavior of people who are sort of grew up with this. There's so much news about like debt, debt, debt. But we spoke to two people who were just so frightened of taking on debt because they were worried about getting stuck with these loans that they couldn't pay off. Um, and one mm -hmm. young man I spoke to basically said that his dad had to force him to get a credit card so he could start building credit. But he was so terrified of it because mm -hmm. he thought you would just be so easy to be underwater which is so different from, you know, the previous, this previous narrative of like American spending culture, which is that, you know, we love debt and like we take so much on and like you just forget uh -huh. about it. Um, it's really different from that. I mean, th the idea of just being like, I don't want to have anxiety. And you know what kind of made me sad when you said that was like, oh, if if my dream job causes um, anxiety and, and debt, then I don't want it. And it's like my first thought was how much are we losing out on as a culture oh, because of this? Yeah. 100%. Like how much are we, you know, how much are these kids losing out on because or that we're losing out on in terms of their talents because they have recession PTSD, essentially? Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, a lot. Well, I'm here to bum you out. <laughs> <laughs> Can we also talk about uh, I'm fascinated by this thing of fellowships rather than entry level jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the thinking there of a company saying uh, well, we don't have an entry-level job for you, but we do have a fellowship. Yeah, we spoke to one young man who, you know, initially was sort of going about his job search in the typical way and then was fine hitting the wall that we talked about earlier, which is, you know, the sort of two to three years minimum experience. But there are these fellowship programs where maybe they're for like nine months if you're a new grad and they pay you very little. Mm -hmm. They pay you basically enough for you to live and maybe hopefully not have any <laughs> medical emergencies. Um, there are no benefits and they end after nine months. Although I think there's some fellowship programs where you can get hired after that, but they're sort of like, it's sort of like a new entry level job in a way. It's like you come, you work, make connections, but you have to like- And really then you're hustle. replaced. 
then you're replaced with a fresh cohort. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully during that time you found enough, you know, you got enough uh, under your belt to like, you know, find like your first job that's on a fellowship job. Yeah, I've worked places that had those and it was definitely a way to cycle people through and and it caused I think a lot of the fellows were very stressed out the entire time because they were trying to turn it into a job mm-hmm. or they were they were trying to figure out how to make a lasting impression. Mm-hmm. Um I feel like it's I feel like it's pretty unethical, <laughs> but it's very normalized by this a- this age these people this age. It's very normalized. Yeah, completely. I think it's almost like this one man I spoke to, he was like there's a very negative connotation around unpaid internship. And I think that there was like in 2014, there was like a reckoning about unpaid internships and mm-hmm. the, the industry was like, okay, we got to move past that. No more unpaid internships. Um, but he was like, so it's, he was like, yeah, there's a negative connotation around it, but it's not as bad as an unpaid internship. Cause at least you like get paid. Um, but the mm-hmm. thing you were saying about anxiety and about like, can you turn it into a job? That's so real. I mean, this young man was so well-adjusted, um, but he was basically like, yeah, you just have to like raise your hand for everything. You're going to work super hard. You're going to work probably more than, definitely more than you're being paid for. But it's the idea, like this promise at the end that it can turn into something that you're like ultimately getting in, in lieu of, you know, uh, like benefits. <laughs> Yeah, and the company is hoping for that. They're like hoping to just keep getting people in who will work, 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 work for them. And then they and in the hopes that something it will turn into something. I mean, okay, so when you were talking about the people that stay at their desks during lunch, they have a thing in their mind where they think that that is good, that that makes them a a better employee or that they are proving something to the like, what is this whole like? the grind or like 24 hour like I'm is it born out of anxiety is it born out of not understanding how jobs work is it born (laughs) out of employers I mean is it true like I didn't know when I started like I saw other people eating at their desks so I was like I guess we eat at our desks like I didn't know yeah I mean man I could talk if I left my desk would I get fired like I didn't know (laughs) dude I could talk about this for a whole other hour probably um but I think it's like there are two sources of it so one of them is definitely, I think we can't ignore the employer side of things. Um, and I surely won't because I think they're really at fault. <laughs> but what what one person told me, one person who has like a pretty cushy job, but who still feels like he needs to work all the time was that, you know, you just don't know because of like how precarious work has become, you know, this idea that you could be fired tomorrow you could be replaced oh you um, could be fired literally whenever <laughs> right it's, like, it, it's it's so wild i mean that has such a big impact on people's like ideas of like how hard they have to work right it, you really mm-hmm. feel like dude i just really have to like prove to them that i am so valuable and just work super super hard right now and maybe they'll like let me stay like i think that's rather than i'll get a promotion it's i hope they let me stay <laughs> and maybe but get i think a-, a lot of gen z feels that way <laughs> yeah i think i mean like cuz i think there is this idea of like you can be replaced anytime i mean we we definitely like learned that lesson um mm-hmm. we've we've been learning that lesson for the last 10 years and i think that part of this conversation also just has to do with like how companies are restructuring you know it saves them more money it can save them up to like 30% of their costs by relying on freelance and contract work 
rather than and permalancers. Yeah, exactly. And so, when you're permalancing, so unethical. You are always auditioning for your next job. You know, like in addition to doing the job, you're also applying for. And the next job, like the next assignment that they'll give you. Yes. Um, yes. So, so that also, I mean, of course, you have to like always work. But I think also like, given how expensive everything is too, and how the cost of living is higher, what a lot of younger people were also telling me was that the way to find meaning—it's very hard to find meaning in life now. We're also a very secular. We're in a very secular moment,、um, and if you don't have a family and you don't really have. This sort of community and like village around you.、Um, oh my gosh! This one person said this thing that like broke my heart. He was like, "If you are having a bad day, you can always go to work and just do more work and get validation from that." It's almost like a positive feedback loop, you know, because of how expensive everything is. People are putting off things like family a lot more, and so that means that we can actually just work more because we don't have like these other obligations. Work becomes.、Right. This thing that we can get so much meaning and fulfillment out of, maybe, or that we hope to,、um, and that just sort of encourages people to throw everything into it. So the legislation has not caught up to the reality of people's job situations.、Mm-hmm. So with the article, with talking to Gen Z, with explaining, having Gen Z in their own voices explain what's going on for them workwise, whether that's someone who just graduated from college or someone who is low income and works minimum wage, or, or、um, is low income and is trying to find a job through a job corp or something like that. Like, what is the legislation missing? Like, what would make the future better for them? Basically,、oh. like, what are they not caught up on? Oh, Gabby, I'm so worried. I'm not qualified to answer that question.、Um, the the <laughs> Legislation piece. The place that that got mentioned、um, was about the sort of freelance independent work, like how how common that's become.、Um, yes. If you do gigging, you're not going to have benefits. You're not going to have health insurance.、Um, it's it'll be hard to have like paid leave if you get injured. Like no one's going to be able to like pay for your medical bills, stuff like that. And so、mm-hmm. where this was coming up was,、um, you know, people were saying that. The legislation needs to find a way to like build safety nets for this kind of work, especially if more people are going to be doing that kind of work. So I think there's been moves to make like a portable benefits package. So instead of being it being attached to a job, it's just attached to the person as they go from job、mm-hmm. to job. That's an idea that's thrown out there. So are, is there more of a lean towards towards socialism from young people too? Is that part of this?、Man. I it came up in one interview. It came up in one really memorable interview where this、uh, young man was talking about watching well Bernie Sanders during the last election and sort of he was in school and in, he was in school in San Francisco and watching all of his friends basically like deal with the weight of trying to put themselves through school, also trying to pay、mm-hmm. off debt, etc. Basically, like, their lives are stunted before they start. Essentially, yes. And he was like, you know what, education should. Like everyone should have education, and it shouldn't have to be like just for like rich people.、Um, so he was、mm-hmm. really moved by Bernie Sanders. But in terms of other conversations, you know, it's sort of like what we were talking about earlier about this is the river and you have to swim in it.、Um, I detected a lot of savvy, and I think they're so much more conscious of the social forces around them than I was, even though I'm like three years older, only three、mm-hmm. years older than some of these people. But what I also detected was a lot of like. Alongside this really deep and precocious knowledge of what's going on right now in the economy, in the 
in the world, um, this practical, this put, lean towards practicality and pragmatism. So it's re- it'll be really curious to see how these two forces play out because they're a little bit, at, they're kind of at odds. Yeah. I think a lot of this stuff will have a lot of long-term effects on this generation in no matter what class. So I just want to, I want to leave off with, with one thing, a quote that stuck out. Someone talking about work and they said, I kind of just exist there. It's a place for me to make money. My company bleeds its employees dry. Management could hire a lot more people, but they know that these people can handle it for a year or two. And once they burn out, they're replaced by a fresh set. It's a big meat grinder. A lot of my friends work 50 to 60 hours a week because they're given that much work. But I say you owe the company 40 hours they pay you for and nothing else. Yeah. Would you say that that's... I felt that that was very indicative as a quote. Oh, man. Yes. This person... This interview killed me. Um, this was the mm-hmm. same person who was talking about how, you know, if you're having a bad day, you can always just work more. And he feels that management knows this, um, mm-hmm. particularly among young people, and can take advantage of that. Yeah, it's sort of when he was saying, you know, I just sort of exist there. To me, it really blew my mind because we've been, I think, we have been told so many things about work and what our relationship to work should be, you know, mm-hmm. going back to the whole passionate thing, or mm-hmm. maybe you're not being paid a lot now, but maybe you'll be paid more once you're like a superstar, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, but what do you say, which is almost like nihilist, right? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> is it? and, you know, I'm getting paid, I'm there, I can go. It's, yeah, it, it really, it, it really shook me. And it felt, it felt very novel. It felt like something I I don't hear my friends articulate. And it also like, I think there's a stigma to saying something like this publicly too. Mm -hmm. And the fact that that there's a stigma around just saying, you know, I just go to work for work. um, The fact that there's a stigma among young people to say that is fascinating. I think it speaks volumes about, you know, what we expect people to get and to put into their work. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. Our show is produced and edited by Melissa Yeager-Miller and sound engineered and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our associate producer is Kristen Torres. And our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and was written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye! Stitcher. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.